Uh, We're going to shift gears and transition into the book of Acts, and I want to start by just asking you a quick question and getting some feedback. How would you describe the church? If you were to give me some adjectives that describe the church, what are some of the ones that come to your mind? What is the church? Community. Good. What else? Worldwide. Witness. Bride. Bride of Christ. The body. What other adjectives would you use? Diverse, for sure. Trendy. Broken. Good, I was waiting for someone to throw a not-so-positive one in. Any others come to mind? Regenerating. Good. Divisive. Fellowship. Courageous. Building. We could keep going and listing for a really long time the unique, beautiful church. This week, as I was in Chicago and I just kept seeing church after church, we um, tend to go on a bit of a, a journey on Sunday. So while you were here on Sunday, we went to seven churches, a mosque, and a Hindu temple all on Sunday. And um, then during the week, we went to some other churches and connected with leaders. And one of the things that seemed to keep coming up over and over is the uniqueness, the enormity, the complexity, the beauty of the church. For me, I just continued to see it again and again and again. We went to the full spectrum of churches. So we went to uh, primarily Latino churches or African American churches. We went to Episcopal, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. We went to churches that were very, very high church. Then we went to churches that were like super, super low church. Uh, we went to hip hop church. We, I mean, the full, full gamut of churches. And uh, a couple of them stood out to me as we were talking about this idea of complexity, of uniqueness, of beauty of the church. One is this uh, little church. It's in Little Village which is a primarily Latino, a mostly uh, Mexican immigrant community. And uh, they are uniquely positioned in this nondescript building, somewhat like our own, nondescript, just kind of uh, on, the, on this, not even a major street, but the street that they are on is the exact dividing line between one Hispanic gang on this side of the street and another Hispanic gang on the other side of the street. And they are right on that street, on the corner, and they do gang prevention, they do this ministry, and they have the building open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in a church of about 300 people, just pouring into the community. So you see stories like that of the church, or you go to a church on the northern side of Chicago, in in a neighborhood, most diverse church I've ever been a part of, that I've ever seen. The amount of nationalities and people groups in the church is incredible. And if I was to boil their church down to one word, it would just be the word prayer. That's the strategy for everything. So you need more money for the church? Pray. You need wisdom for the church? Pray. You need to see the church grow? Pray. You need the sink fixed? Pray. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is, the strategy the only method of God building the church is prayer. I want to highlight one other church. is the one that uh, Lauren mentioned. Uh, ten years ago, this church moved into what is considered the most diverse 
neighborhood in the entire United States. I mean, this will tell you the diversity. Uh, in the high school, 80 languages are spoken. In the middle school, they have one, uh, one foreign language, and it's Arabic. So these are, this, this neighborhood is like a graveyard of church planting. Church planters go in and fail again and again and again and again. Nobody can break into the Rogers Park neighborhood. And this guy decided to move in, started this church, started caring for people after school, started meeting people in their homes. And ten years later, about two months ago, they had their first service. I mean, that's longevity. That's embedding deeply. That's meeting the needs of a community. That's what it looks like to be the church. So the church is unique and beautiful and diverse. But I think another word that stood out to me as I was in all these churches is that the word one. The church is one, one body, one group of people. That we are all a part of the same church. We are the same bride of Christ. That regardless of languages, customs, creeds, diversity, all of that is kind of out of the window because we are one, one church. Theologically speaking, And even practically speaking, we are called to be one unified church. And as I was preparing to talk or kind of give a little bit of an intro on the book of Acts, this idea of the one church kept coming up because you see this story in Acts is our story. This is the story of our church. It's not necessarily when our church got incorporated 21 years ago, because that's not the point, but this is the original incorporation of the church. This is it from the very beginning. This is the foundation. That God comes, He gives His life, that He's resurrected. Then we ask the question like we did last week, well, what next? And Jesus comes back and He teaches the apostles for about 40 days and He gives them instructions and then He says, be the church. And this is our story from the very beginnings that we get to look at. And this church being unique and beautiful, has some elements, I think, that are true of the churches that were in Chicago. They're also true of the church in Acts, and I believe, hopefully, are true of our community as well. And so what I want to do is just take a few minutes and highlight a few themes in the book of Acts that I think are relevant to this idea of one, one church. The first idea is this. If you're taking notes, first idea is movement. Throughout the book of Acts, you are going to see movement. And here's what I mean. For those of you not familiar with Acts, Acts is the second part of one book, really. Luke-Acts is really one big combined book, in essence. All right, He wrote a first part, then he wrote a second part, written to the same individual, basically with the same purpose, to tell the life of Jesus and then to begin to outline the history or the beginnings of the church. So Luke-Acts makes up about one quarter of the entire New Testament. In fact, Dr. Luke would be have written more than even Paul. If you combine all of it together, Luke-Acts is bigger than all of Paul's letters combined. So Dr. Luke comes in and he has some interesting things to say, but the first thing that is so clear throughout both books when you combine them is that there is a specific movement in the text that's woven into everything that happens. So if you start with the book of Luke, you start on the outskirts. You start in small little towns. You start in outer regions, you start with miracles and with teachings and the simple way of Jesus walking and moving among people. And then 
the story moves you closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. Jerusalem being like the center. And everything in Luke is moving you toward that Holy Week. Everything in Luke is moving you toward death and resurrection. And everything is centered. The focus is centered on Jerusalem. Then when you get to the book of Acts, it kind of picks up where Luke left off. And it starts with Jerusalem. And everything is centered on Jerusalem. Everything centered on the Holy Spirit coming, the church beginning, and then everything you know from Acts 1.8 moving outward, right? So you have Luke moving toward Jerusalem, and then you have everything in Acts, Jerusalem, out to Judea and Samaria, then uttermost parts of the earth. If you were to break the book of Acts down, chapters 1 through 7 really focus on the gospel being spread just specifically in Jerusalem. Then you go to 8 through 11, and it's the gospel being spread in Judea and Samaria. And then you go to 11 to 28, and it's the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8 is really framing the entire book, that we begin to see this movement woven into everything that happens. And movement in this particular book of Acts implies mission. Movement implies mission. What I mean by that is this. It would be impossible for you to read the book of Acts and not come away with being overwhelmed by its evangelistic emphasis. You cannot read the book of Acts and not think witness. You cannot read the book of Acts and not think mission. It's impossible. And so right into the very movement and the way that the whole story goes speaks to this idea that mission is central to what we do as disciples, to what we do as the church, and to what we're called to be about. A couple of quotes I wanted to throw up, because I think they capture this idea. The church exists by mission, as a fire exists by burning. It's the very core of who we're called to be. Bosch writes, there is a church because there is mission. It's not the other way around. It's not the opposite. It is, there is a church and its strict reason for being is mission. We exist for the world. And that's what we're going to see throughout this book of Acts, that there's going to be movement, and that movement implies mission. All right, the second thing I think we're going to see as we go throughout this book is a clear picture of the Holy Spirit. Over and over in the text, you see the Holy Spirit being active and alive. Some would even say that the book of Acts should be titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, rather than just the Acts of the Apostles. So the Holy Spirit is really just front and center throughout all of the pages. For those of you familiar with the book of Acts, you will see it again and again and again. So let me ask you this. How would you describe the role of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts? How does He show up? Talk to me about it. How does He show up throughout these 28 chapters? What is he doing? How is he moving? What words come to mind? Powerful. Miracles. Releasing people from prison. Good. What else? Wisdom. Yeah, guiding. Leading people into truth. What else? Again? I didn't hear it. Authority, thank you. I'm getting deaf. I'm 37. Integrated. Risky. Catalyst. 
These words picture an active, moving, alive spirit. We have to ask the question, or it begs us to ask the question, would those be the same words that we would use to describe the Holy Spirit's presence here? I mean, there has to be a question that we ask at some point throughout this series, and even asking it now and getting us to begin to think, is that how we would describe the Holy Spirit's presence here in the church local? I mean, I admit, I grew up kind of underappreciating the role of the Holy Spirit. The church I grew up in, my parents' church, uh, they basically, I think, operated with the idea that there were two members of the Trinity. There was God and Jesus. We kind of gave the Holy Spirit away to a different denomination, right? <laughs> and, and so we're like, we didn't want to touch that. It was kind of like, you know, it's two's company, three's a crowd. That was kind of like a theme, right? Um, so there was just this idea like, no, let's not, let's not go there. In fact, I remember there were times like you just, you just wouldn't raise your hand in church. In fact, like if you did raise your hand during worship or any time, you better have a question. That was kind of like the idea, right? And so I, I just always kind of took this like, I, just, I don't know about the Spirit. I don't know about His role. I don't know what He's doing. But you cannot ignore the Spirit in this text. It's impossible. That He's active. He's moving. And we believe that He is so active and moving that He is present and doing and performing miracles even today. We've witnessed many of them here. We've seen God do incredible things. I was with a friend of mine in Africa a couple summers ago, and he told me this story of one of the most radical ways in which the Spirit of God worked in his life specifically. Besides him trusting Christ, and that being the most radical experience, he had this one time where he got out of college, he was without a job, he felt like God was calling him into ministry, but he just needed to get a job for a little bit before, while he went to school and prepared for uh, what God was inviting him into. And uh, David's his name, he tells the story of going and trying to apply for jobs and nothing was working out, and finally he sees this ad in the paper. It says, uh, at this bank... We, we need somebody to come and work, and they have to have proficiency with computers. He didn't have proficiency with computers, but he thought, I'm going to go. There's a time for me to show up. He walks into the bank, says, I'm here to talk about the job interview. And they said, okay, well, here's what we want you to do. Come to the back. And they walk him to the very back, and they show him this computer. And this is at the beginning of the Internet. This is the beginning of computer coding. This is... All kinds of stuff that he had no clue about. And they walk him and they show him this screen and they said, the former guy that was working here couldn't figure out this problem. There's a problem deep embedded in all this code. We don't know what it is. We need someone to figure it out. And here's the deal. You figure it out, the job is yours. Because we need someone to come up with a solution. So he is left in the room by himself. The guy leaves and he goes, on his way out he says, I'll be back in four hours you have it figured out in four hours, the job is yours. And he walks out. So my friend sits down, looks at the computer, doesn't even use a computer, doesn't know what he's doing. He looks at it. It looked probably like this to him, a little code action. It's just a big mess, right? He just sees all these letters, numbers. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. So he decides, I'm not, I'm, nothing's going to happen if I just sit here and look at the screen. No good will come of it. Four hours will go by, and I will be without a job still. So he 
got down on his knees and said, if I've got four hours, I might as well spend time praying. And so he takes the first three hours and prays. God, help me, I I need a job. You've invited me into this. There's all these things that you keep showing that this is what I'm supposed to do, but I have no clue what I'm doing. This I cannot figure this out. It is so far beyond me. And he just prays and prays and prays and prays and prays. And then he gets up after three hours. He sits down at the computer, looks at the screen, and everything makes complete sense to him. He sits down, and in ten minutes, boom, done. Five minutes later, the guy walks in, and he goes... Yeah, it's figured out. It's done. The guy goes, okay, the job is yours. They look at it. It's completely solved. The whole problem's figured out. He goes on to work for that company for like 10 years, works his way all the way up to one of the leaders of the entire organization. All because God did a miracle, a movement of the Spirit. So when we say he speaks in tongues, he even means computer code, right? (laughs) That, That... God is is moving in incredible ways, that the Spirit is alive and active, and we believe that. And we see it all throughout this book. The question is, does the church actually depend on the Spirit? I once read a statement that if the Holy Spirit left today, if He was gone, was no longer present on earth, 90% of church work would continue. Because... 90% of it is done without His presence, without relying on Him. I hope that is not the case, but maybe we should ask the question a little more personally. The Holy Spirit left your life today. What part of your life would go unchanged? And that really begins to bring it home. Would you just absolutely fall apart because you have such faith and such dependence and the Spirit is moving so deeply? Or would business go on as usual. Leads us to our third main idea, and that is the idea of persecution. Throughout the book, you see this picture of persecution. In fact, I would say you could develop quite a strong theology of suffering simply from the book of Acts. And contained in it, we have threats, beatings, murder, imprisonment, riots, mobs, Abuse, stoning, the list goes on and on. As much as the Holy Spirit is present, we also see a great presence of persecution. But here's the truth. Whether you figure this out or not, suffering normally follows ministry. Where you are active in faith, where you are on the ground working and moving for the sake of the kingdom, Suffering will follow. Period. I hate to be the bearer of such bad news, but it's the truth. You see it throughout the scriptures. Let me give you just a couple examples. In Acts, you hear in chapter 5 that they felt worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. You hear here in chapter 14, says that uh, Paul was dragged out of the city. They had beaten him, they had stoned him, and they supposed he was dead. Later they come to find out that he wasn't, and then they went on to preach the gospel to that city and had many disciples. They returned then to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying this, 
that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's just a part of what will happen. We move on to 1 Thessalonians and you see this. That Timothy was sent as a co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Destined to suffer affliction. 2 Timothy says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, not could be, but will be. It's just a part of the way things are. It isn't just because we invite it. It's because of Ephesians. Right? There's this statement made in Ephesians that makes it very clear. For we struggle not against flesh and blood. We are not in this thing just against human will and emotion. But rather against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over the darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That there is a war being waged. And in it, persecution is a natural outcome. We're going to see that throughout the book of Acts, and you probably see it in your life as well. Last but not least, another theme you're going to see is the church, or community life. I think wherever you have mission, wherever you have movement, wherever you have persecution, wherever you have the Spirit moving, you have the church. And we described the church at the beginning, and I would say that the church is beautiful. It is described so incredibly in this book. Here's some of the words that are used. That the church had all things in common. They shared with one another. There was great teaching and the word was being used. There was prayer, praising God, power, that people were being added to their number daily. This is the way that the church is being described. And I think we could even add to it what you're going to see throughout this time is you're going to see the simplicity of the church. In its rawest, most natural form. You're going to see the church before building programs. Building program just happened in Texas. I don't know if you heard about it. Renovation, $130 million renovation. The largest in the history of the American church. This is before building programs. This is before elder boards and deacon committees. This is the simplest form of the church. You're going to see a faithfulness of the church, an authenticity, a realness. The church was a giving force. The way that they handled their resources was generous, almost to a fault, like just give it away, give it away. Transformational, effective, and last, it's the people. The church is the people. All of this, I believe, begins to sum up a little bit of what we're going to see in Acts. And also reminds us that we are that same church. It's the same church. It's the church from the beginning that will be the church until the very end. And we are a part of this stream of faith. And we're to embody these same things. A movement, a mission, a sense of the Holy Spirit. A sense that there is going to be persecution, but that it will result in this beautiful, organic, lovely church, the bride of Christ. So that's a little bit of the major themes, but I wanted to wrap up by giving you a little bit more in three minutes. So here's a video that will capture the book of Acts 
in three minutes. Sam, will you slide those lights down? After being crucified, Jesus comes back to life and hangs out with the apostles. He tells them they will receive the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses. Jesus takes off. The disciples are gathered together on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrives. Tongues of fire hover over them, hence the logo. The disciples speak in tongues. Peter preaches the first sermon. 3,000 people get saved. God, one. Satan, zero. The end of Acts chapter 2 is written, providing mission statements for churches in the 21st century. Peter heals a lame man and preaches another sermon. Another 2,000 people get saved. Peter and John are thrown in jail. They are released. Peter and John celebrate with the other believers and pray for continued boldness. God rocks the house, literally. Ananias and Sapphira lie about their offering to the church and are struck dead. Contributions skyrocket. The apostles preach again. They are thrown in jail again. An angel releases them. They preach some more. The apostles nominate seven deacons to look after widows and orphans, including Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Stephen is stoned. Present at the stoning is a young man named Saul. We'll come back to that later. Persecution breaks out. Believers scatter. Things look bad for the church. Or do they? Wherever the believers go, they preach the word, thus fulfilling the Great Commission. God, two, Satan, still, zero. Philip meets a eunuch. The eunuch is baptized. Meanwhile, Saul is on his way to persecute believers in Damascus when Jesus appears. Saul is blinded. Saul is healed. Saul repents and begins preaching to the same people he intended to persecute. God, three, Satan, well, you get the idea. Peter has a vision of unclean animals. Peter has an encounter with unclean Gentiles. He gets it. God has extended salvation to the Gentiles. Major game changer. Herod is eaten by worms. Barnabas and Paul start working together, traveling and preaching the word. By the way, I'm going to call Saul Paul now. I don't have time to explain why. Still with me? In Lystra, crowds attempt to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. They refuse to be worshipped and are stoned. The Lystrians are a tough crowd. Paul and Barnabas survive. Paul and Barnabas part ways. Paul and Silas team up. Timothy joins Paul and Silas. Paul circumcises Timothy. Paul receives a vision of a man from Macedonia asking for help. The party leaves for Macedonia. Spoiler alert, they are thrown in prison yet again. They sing. An earthquake loosens their shackles, but they stick around to lead the jailer to Christ. Yada, 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 more preaching. In Troas, Paul preaches for so long that a man falls asleep and plummets out a window to his death. The man is resurrected. Paul preaches some more. The man wishes he was dead. Paul returns to Jerusalem, where he is promptly arrested again. He is visited by the Lord, who assures him that Paul will testify about him in Rome. Paul feels better. Paul is transferred to Caesarea, where his case is caught up in red tape for two years. Finally, Paul appeals to Caesar and is put on a fast ship to Rome. The shipwrecks. Paul is bitten by a snake. At last, Paul makes it to Rome. He is placed under house arrest and continues to preach the gospel while awaiting trial. And that is all we know of Paul's story. Somewhere in there, he finds the time to write a few letters. Today, they comprise much of the New Testament. The New Testament is also where you'll find the book of Acts. The end. So anything I missed in the beginning was made up with that. We've caught all of us up to speed with the book of Acts. We are going to be entering into this for about a year, is the plan. And uh, we'll be working through all the unique elements that this uh, book brings to us. Let me pray, and uh, then we'll be on our way.